You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Time for The Naked Scientist. We are taking your calls on 011-883-0702. Your WhatsApp's on 0727021702. Any of your science-related questions that you'd like to get through, and I know we never get through all of your questions, I encourage you to try, try, and try again. We do our best to get through as many as possible. Chris, happy World Radio Day to you. World Radio Day. Now, there's a thing. You know, this show, as of about now, is 15 years old. We started this phone-in show in 2008 as a trial that was going to last about six months in January 2008, 15 years ago. And here we are. It's still going. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. No, that is amazing. I didn't even know that. 15 years is a long time, and look at how we continue to be curious about science-related matters, and there are never enough questions to go around. There are just too many questions. Yeah, and and also I think that... um it just really is testimony to, to the power of live radio. There are lots of different ways to consume media these days, whether that's TV or podcasts and so on, but a lot of them are a one-way street where people listen and passively digest the information, mm. whereas in this show, very much it's it's in the hands of the, the people who are listening because it turns the tables and says, well, what do you want to know about? And there are not that many radio programmes that really do that, and that's one of the, I think, most awesome powers of, of live proper live radio that you can actually have that kind of interaction and engagement and that's what you guys do so well definitely and and what an honor and a privilege it is to do with 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 individuals like yourself because i literally feel like i'm here just to facilitate certain conversations with those that know a lot more than myself and obviously to all of the listeners as well so let's jump straight into those calls we've got nkanka in edenvale hi nkanka um, hello. Yes. Hi, Lubushile and the doctor. So, um, my question is, uh, when it comes to sound, we've got the instruments to measure it and we've got the decibels, the unit of measurement. Is there something similar for smell, for the sense, like, um, are the instruments to measure smell, then intensity that would maybe damage the, the sense of smell or something like that? Oh, that's a very, very good question, Nkanka. Well, what I can say is that the way that we measure sound, you quite rightly say, is the decibel system. And this is because sound is a physical thing. It's an entity. It's energy. And you can think of sound as it's a compression wave going through the air. So if I took a long spring, stretched it out between two people, and I then pulled a few coils of the spring together and let them go then those coils would cannon into the core next door, into the core next door, and you'd see this compression wave go all the way to the other person, bounce off them and come back towards me. That's what sound is doing with the molecules in the air. So when I'm talking, I'm making changes in pressure, which are compressing and then allowing to to expand, again, the air that's coming out of my mouth, it's going into a microphone, and that energy is being transferred into a capsule in the microphone and making it move, which is then making electricity, which is then via the magic of radio ending up over the airwaves and then it comes out of the speaker that you're listening to and the same thing happens the speaker moves that moves the air and it creates that compression wave which goes to your ear and your ear turns those sound waves into brain waves but that's because there's energy that's being transduced it's being converted from 
my voice making molecules move to making a microphone diaphragm move to making electrons move in a wire. Smell is a bit different. Smell is not an energy in that respect. I suppose you could say smell is chemical potential energy because smell is a combination of different chemicals. We call them odorants, which are present at any one time. And they go into your nose, go to the top of your nose, and there's a sheet of tissue there called the olfactory epithelium. And the smells dock with particular receptors, which are chemical docking stations that are the right shape for each smell molecule. And so what we call a smell is actually a constellation of different molecules, which are all docking with your smell system all at the same time and making a particular combination of receptors light up. And when that combination lights up and signals to the brain, this combination of odour molecules are present at the same time, that is what we then perceive as the smell of something. It's a complex mixture of molecules and you can increase or decrease the relative contributions of those molecules by changing their concentrations and that in turn adjusts the smell because the more of something is there and the less of something else is there, the way that the odour profile is changed, that completely changes your perception of the smell. So it's not in the same way comparable to sound, which is a physical energy that you can measure. But you can certainly measure the concentrations of those molecules and therefore you can with a computer you could and a device a measuring device you could say what something would smell like and this is very much big business in science these days we have these things called e noses electronic noses and they can do what your nose does but they do it by basically registering the different concentrations of the different molecules and working out what something would smell like and we use this sort of technology all the time and increasingly we're doing things like looking for uh, food safety with this, we can look for mouldy food, we can look for explosives, a whole range of different things you can detect this way now with these e-noses. But can we have a, a, a dangerous threshold for a smell? Well, if something's poisonous, yes, of course, but it might not necessarily have a smell because we're not necessarily able to smell some of the most poisonous things. And the, the classic one is carbon monoxide. This will kill you very, very quickly if you inhale a lot of carbon monoxide, but it's completely odourless. All right, thank you so much, Nkanka, for that question. Let's go to Tebi in Northcliffe. Hi, Tebi. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks, and you? I'm good. I have a question for you, doctor. I have a one-year, six-month-old boy. Um, he constantly hits himself against the wall with, her, with his head. So I was wondering if it does affect uh, his development because now he can only say mama and baby only and he's one year six months, should I be worried or there's anything I can do? Did you say he bumps his head? Yes, you constantly do that, even on the floor. Mm. Oh, kid, kids do that all the time. I mean, you know, kids, kids are always covered in bruises. So we're always very careful because obviously one worries that kids are being bullied or beaten up by their parents. And unfortunately, sadly, some children are harmed by those who are supposed to be looking after them. But most of the time, that's not the case. It's because kids are very accident prone. They're not very coordinated and they bash themselves around all the time. So it's quite common for, for kids to take knocks and bumps as long as they're not uh, being dramatically serious like falling off a worktop onto a hard floor and whacking their head and lacerations and so on the odd bump and scratch and scrape is, is perfectly normal for kids and that's not going to harm their development there's more than eight billion humans on earth and we wouldn't be those sorts of numbers if it was that easy to get rid of us but um in terms of development there are things we call milestones and there are there are certain milestones that should be reached by certain stages but remember 
everybody is different. Everyone's an individual. So although the average is to meet those milestones, some individuals will be a bit behind. Some will be a bit ahead. It doesn't mean they're necessarily destined to be abnormal. It just means that they might be a bit unusual. They're at one end of the spectrum, for example, of what we consider normal. So before drawing any kind of conclusions, one must always remember that everyone's an individual and not everyone is going to follow perfectly these milestones. By the age of one and a half, kids ought to be saying words and they ought to have a, a reasonable vocabulary of things they can string together, you know, more than one word put together. If this is a consistent thing, then it might be worth having someone give you some advice. But I mean, my own son, because I've got a son and a daughter, and my daughter very quickly started talking and hasn't stopped since. My son, she won't mind me saying that. My son, on the other hand, was stum for ages and said almost nothing until he was a year and a half old, I think. And then it was like a button had been pressed. And instead of made up words and, and rubbish coming out, which is what most little kids just burble and babble about, it was perfect sentences with all the grammar correct, all there, all at once. It was almost like he was waiting until he could do it properly before even trying. So it might be that your son's going to be the same. So can I ask Tebi, was he saying other words prior to the head head um, hitting thing? No. Okay, so it's just that he's only saying mama and papa. Yes, I guess I was right because his sister was much faster than he is. Oh, uh, okay. No, it's completely understandable. I think doctor's given a very, very reasonable explanation um, that yeah. all of the kids are different. And if you're in, if you're unsure, like what we said, speaking in our previous conversation, when in doubt, you know, go to a professional. Don't lose sleep over something. You can go and just have something, uh, uh, somebody check it out. Thank you so much, Sebi in Northcliffe. Let's go to John in Riddipoort. Hi, John. Hello, hello. Yes. The question I have for the doctor is if you take a glass of cold water and you put it on a wooden table and you leave it there for a while, when you lift the glass at the bottom of the glass on the table, you see water droplets. Mm. Now, where do those water droplets come from? Do they come from water in the or do they come from the air? And another question I have is, what must I do to become a brain of 702? (laughs) John, first thing is you need to keep listening to this show, The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith, and you might be able to become a brain of 702. But doctor, the water, the residue, where does it come from, the glass or from the air? Hi, John. Yes, and good advice there from Lebo. You've got to listen to this program and then everyone gets a bit brainier, me included. I learn so much doing this. The answer is it comes from the air. It's not that the glass is leaking. Air is continuously full of water. It's got humidity and it's only in very rare circumstances where air is completely dry. There is in the air water vapour, which means water molecules wandering around in amongst the other parts of the air that we breathe. And where does that water come from? Well, it comes from water that's evaporated from us, from our sweat, from water we breathed out in our breath, from the water that's all around us all the time, that's evaporating under the influence of the sun and so on. So there's always some water there. And if you put a cold surface there, then the cold will rob the water molecules, the vapour of energy, and they will form a droplet of water because they'll go from a vapour to a liquid. That's a phase change and they'll associate with more water, and this is condensation. That's what's happening when you've got a cold mirror in your bathroom and you have a shower. The vapour, which is the steam, 
which is vaporized water molecules, are wandering around in the air when they bash into the cold mirror. The mirror takes energy away from the water vapor and it makes it condense because it makes it easier for it to stick to other nearby water molecules and form a droplet of water. That's what's happened on your glass. The water has collected, run down to the bottom, down the sides of the glass, and formed a ring at the bottom of the glass. And that's what you can see on the tabletop. Hopefully don't do that on your fancy French polished tabletop or you'll have a damp ring that you won't get rid of and then you'll be in big trouble. Definitely. Dylan in Santon, hi. Hi. Um, so... <coughs> My question is, with proton decay, um, in regards to proton decay, the idea is that protons will eventually decay into some form of radiation in probably eons, right? Um, my question is, when this happens, what form of, of particle does that radiation come in? Because when this radiation um, occurs, it, can't, it couldn't be a quark, could it? Because quarks, they, they don't, when you kind of step, they can't separate, can they? Um, you're, you're asking really about the lifetime of light energy, aren't you? So if, if you make some light, you make some energy, and then you put that into something, then where does it go? Does it just disappear? Does the light come, go? We don't think light disappears. We don't think the energy can be created or destroyed. So um, I, I don't think that we, we think that photons do disappear. We think that they're, they're made, they're there, and they, they stick around. So I, I don't think photons do decay, but if, if I'm wrong, I'm not a particle physicist, then can someone please put me right? But I don't think they do disappear. Thank you so much, Dylan in Santon, for that question. Let's go to the voice notes. Hey, good afternoon, Dr. Chris. Um, Spoo here from Pretoria. I just wanted to find out, what's the scientific explanation of why do we cry and shed tears when we're sad? What causes or what's the chemical reaction that causes tears to flow when we're feeling sad? Thank you. Doctor. First of all, what are, what are tears? Well, tears are secretions made from your blood. You have on the outer part of your eye a lacrimal gland. Lacrimal in Latin means I cry, which is why it's called the lacrimal gland. And the blood which runs through the gland is filtered to remove the cells and just take the salty water. And that makes the tears. Their normal job is to lubricate and cleanse your eye because they're also replete with antibodies and other microbe and infection suppressing chemicals. So they keep your eyes healthy, clean and lubricated. When we go to sleep, that process turns down and the tear fluid becomes much thicker and stodgier, which is why you wake up with crusty deposits in the edge of your eyes. And when we get sad or ecstatically happy, you can augment the process, as you can also when you irritate your eyes. And the idea is if you augment the production of this fluid, you can wash out bad stuff, but you can also use it as a visual signal. And you think humans are very, very visual creatures. About a third of our brain is devoted just to decoding what goes in these two things we call eyes on the fronts of our faces. So if you've got a third of your brain devoted to seeing things, it makes sense that when we as a social species want to communicate effectively among ourselves, we do such uh, communication visually. We can change colour. We go bright wet, red when we're angry. We go white pale when we're frightened or, or, or deathly pale when we're feeling very ill. We also uh, pull funny faces to show that we're very happy or very unhappy. And similarly, we can cry. And when we have an extreme of emotion, whether it's joy or sadness and sometimes pain, it can, through the, the same nerve pathways that control the production of tears, it can spill over 
into that pathway and cause the production of excess tears which overwhelm your ability to drain them out of your eye because normally there's a little system a punctum on next to your nose which is like a plug hole and the tears go in there and drain into your nose and that gets rid of the moisture when you massively increase the supply of tears it overwhelms your ability for them to go down the drain hole and so they flow down your face instead but it serves as a very useful visual cue to those around you I'm very, very happy. Come and share in my happiness and let's bond that way. Or I'm very, very unhappy. I'm distressed. Something's wrong. I need help and support. And if you think about it, if, if when we see someone crying, we often do think, well, can I do anything to help you? you know, what's up? It elicits help. It makes us stronger together. And that's why we're so successful as a species, because we're very good at telling each other, both verbally and non-verbally, what it is we need, what it is we want, what's right, what's wrong. Well, I think that was very well um, explained, especially what you said at the at the end, uh, just for us as the human species, that it is that signal because some people are not able to say, I'm not okay. All right, we've got a lesson in Santon. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thanks. And you? I'm great, thank you. Uh, doctor, I want to ask you, because um, I've read multiple articles on it, and I want your opinion. Uh, what's your opinion on there being a multiverse, multiple multiple universes existing at one time? Mm. Uh, this is a common theory, and it's just that, a theory, because we have no evidence at the moment. But what we mean by the multiverse is that the universe we inhabit has a certain set of rules, rules of physics that everything seems to follow. It's got chemistry going on the same here as it is on the other side of that universe it seems to have a beginning which we call the big bang and that happened about 13.8 billion years ago when something which was infinitesimally small but very very energetic then pops into existence as a universe expands very fast slows down a bit and is now speeding up again and we think we have a universe that's roughly flat in terms of its topology so therefore, we, we understand the universe we're in, but one then asks, well, could there be other universes? Could there be other universes that are separate to our universe? And in theory, you can say, well, yes, there could be. Do they exist? Well, we don't know. But one of the theories suggests that if they do exist, then what should be able to propagate between them is gravity, gravitational waves, which is why we're very interested in, and there was a Nobel Prize awarded for, the ability to detect gravitational waves. So scientists are now beginning to explore how we can build instruments, including space instruments, which are very, very massive telescopes that will detect gravitational waves and may enable us to detect the existence of other universes, which, because they're in different universes and therefore have different dimensional space to the one we inhabit, they will be passing through us and we're not going to know they're there. But gravitational waves may propagate between the two if our theories are correct. So at the moment, this is purely theoretical. There is no evidence that multiple universes exist. But because they are potentially able to exist, that means that in order to constrain and understand better the world of physics and how physics works more broadly on the scale of the universe, we need to go and look for them. And if we can't find them, then within a certain realms of certainty we can say well they probably don't exist and that physics is wrong but if we do find these interesting uh, signatures that might be issuing from other universes wouldn't it be interesting there may be another 702 with another radio show <laughs> the phone and, and another dr christmas millimeters and another <laughs> absolutely Perish love it <laughs> we're gonna have to leave it there dr christmas back together next week